Welcome to AZMCast, a peer-reviewed, evidence-based podcast, heavily seasoned with expert opinion. For all you new listeners, I'm going to give you a quick tutorial on how to use this podcast to its fullest potential. For you faithful veterans, you can go ahead and skip ahead to the good stuff. As you listen to this podcast, you'll hear contributors give opinions on everything from practice styles to diagnostic evaluations to emergency medicine philosophy. When you hear the bell ding, that means that the opinion is backed by evidence. Check your screen on your device to see the reference paper, and we suggest taking a screenshot for future reading. When you hear the turkey gobble, that's just our opinion, and you can decide whether you want to take it or leave it. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the June episode of AZMCast. We are closing in on our seventh season of producing AZMCast, and we're starting to get the itch. No, not scabies, though it's always in the back of my mind. No, the itch to do something more with the podcast, a new format, new contributors, and hopefully something more engaging for you, the listener. So stay tuned for next season. But to close out this season... We're going to ease some aching heads using some pharmacy mixology. The migraine cocktail is the secret weapon for any good emergency provider. you got to be able to read the patient and know when to try something new or when to just make it a double. Our docs and pharmacists will go over their favorite cocktails like a bartender's guide to evidence-based medicine. So grab your cocktail shaker and let's get a slow push of this month's episode of AZMCast on headache cocktails. I think we're there. All right. So Brian started this off last time. Three guys walk into a bar. The third guy ducks. Third guy ducks. Fourth guy ducks. Fourth guy ducks. Uh, But then the first couple people get driven to the emergency department by the third guy because walking into the bar set off a wicked headache. Um, And so that's where we come in. So last time we talked about kind of the workup for these headaches and trying to figure out what was going on. Was there anything bad? And we kind of just petered out near the end saying, no, they're probably all just going to be migraines, Um, which is not exactly true, but that's kind of the gist of what we got to is once you rule out the bad things with headaches, it's pretty, um, uh, pretty straightforward for how you can approach a lot of headaches. You just have to have a keen listening ear for what's different. But then when it comes down to it, most people come to the ER with a headache, not so much because they're worried something bad is happening, but because they just want their headache to go away. It's just a rash at that point. You've ruled out all the bad rashes and all the rest of them, you just give them some Benadryl and steroids, right? Mm -hmm. You just go, well, it's nothing bad, nothing I can obviously tell. So here's all I got. Yeah. So we call it migraine, but it, you know, does it matter? Does it really matter if it's a specific, you know, would a neurologist call it a migraine or a headache disorder of another type? We're going to treat them the same. So the approach to this is pretty widely varied. So I've uh, had attendings tell me, we'll just give them a migraine cocktail as if that's something that everybody should just be aware of, you know, your typical migraine cocktail. And just like any bartender will tell you, if you just say, what would you like to drink? I'd like a cocktail. Cool. Would you care to be more specific? (laughs) Uh, There is definitely many ways to approach the treatment of a migraine headache. Um, I've got probably 
uh, four or five different steps that I'll go through of like, let's try this and then we'll try this and then we'll try this. And I tell the residents when we go in, as soon as you do your history and physical, for the most part, you can figure out if this is going to be a bad headache or if this is going to be a headache that just feels bad. And then I tell the patient, look, my job now is to get you feeling better. And at any point, if you start to feel better, you let us know and you can go home. But mm -hmm. if you don't, then let us know and we'll move on to plan B and then plan C and then plan D. And we'll keep going all the way until we get to plan F. And I say, well, uh, do you want to stay in the hospital or do you want to go home and deal with this on your own? Exactly. So the first thing uh, that we'll kind of discuss is uh, one thing that should not really be in your armamentarium for true migraine cocktails is opioids. Um, and yet... But doctor, Dilaudid's the only thing that works for me for all my headaches. How much? Uh, how much you got? <laughs> <laughs> I had a patient tell me one time they were allergic to two milligrams dilaudid, but four milligrams was okay. <laughs> That's great. So, um, yeah, avoiding opioids is something that is on, uh, it's on uh, the American College of Emergency Physicians clinical policy guidelines. It's uh, in a lot of neurology guidelines. It's part of the Choosing Wisely campaign for neurologists to avoid treating headaches with opioids and yet it's still something patients ask for and it's still something that uh, I have residents say well but that's what the patient wants and we just want their headache to go away right I'll even have some some residents say I, I know it's not what I'm supposed to give but this is the only way we're going to get them out of the emergency department yeah I'll use everything I can and I only save it for if it's going to change an admission versus a discharge. You know, you're given everything. I'll give them one dose of an opiate at the very end. If they say, if you give me that, I'll go home. I may make that barter. And I know it's the wrong thing to do, but to be honest, an admission versus a uh, discharge, sometimes this is the more art of medicine um, as opposed to the science. So. The turkey of medicine. <laughs> Total turkey, and you can turkey all over that. But that being said, do I give opiates to 99 of 100 patients with headaches? No. This is like the less than 1%. And it should never be first line, second line, third line. It's like last line. And I think just for a little bit of background on why we're all so anti-opioid when it comes to headache, um, as we start getting into the more effective therapies, you'll see there's not a lot of distance between, you know, the different, you know, thiazines and some of the other things that are, you know, more considered first-line agents. Um, most of them have shown that they're better than opioids for this. Uh, opioids just aren't that effective, um, you know, from an evidence-based perspective. So really, the only reason why somebody would be asking for opioids is more because they want opioids than because it's the only thing that works for their headache. Thought I'd throw that out there. I agree. The, I, I'm at the point now where I, I feel like if the only thing that's going to get their headache on is an opioid, um, that's because I'm not actually treating a, a headache pain at that point. I'm probably treating something else like either some degree of dependence or anxiety over not having the opioid because they know that's happened before. And um, I, I just, I've kind of just stopped altogether. Like I can't remember the last time I gave opiates, even to a patient still reporting headache. And at that point, I'll either I don't usually admit very many of them. If I truly think it's a refractory migraine that I haven't been able to control with their usual medicines and I'd be starting something like some weird, you know, ergotamine drip or something, then I'll call neurology or if they want to go with the Depakote route. 
then, then I'll call neurology. And, and, you know, I, they often admit these people, if, if they kind of passed my filter in the ER, then I think they're, the neurology respects that. But um, I do send an awful lot of people home that are still saying my headache's not gone. And if you don't give me opioids, it's not going to get better. And I'll say, well, here's your discharge papers. I really don't. I just print the discharge and it magically happens. I don't have to have these conversations. I have residents and nurses do it for me. So, Well said. <laughs> I thought that was just the pharmacist trick. Oh, yeah. No, don't give this guy opioids. It's your mm-hmm. problem. Yeah. <laughs> well, will you come talk to me with him? Ah, uh, No, no, I don't. Do uh, I don't uh, I'll just give him some Dilaudid then. I do uh, think I can't wear the I, N95. <laughs> I, I do think that it's an interesting uh, point, though. If somebody comes in and they've got their they've got their abdominal pain that flares up, and the only thing that works is dilated, um, how often do we give into that? Uh, versus saying, you know, we we really feel like this is more of an opioid dependence issue. We 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 hurt people when we give them opioids too frequently in the emergency department, especially to go home with. And so I know your headache's not any better, but we're just not going to give you opioids. I think that this uh, kind of strays away from being a true, like, what am I going to do about your migraine discussion and turns into, if you want to think of these in their own, uh, you know, little silos, this turns into a little more of a uh, opioid dependence discussion. Um, before I'm just going to say, why don't I slip you two milligrams dilated and then, you know, beat it. Uh, instead, it's more of a, hey, let's talk about this. If this is really the only thing that's working for you, I don't think you have migraines. I think that you have an opioid issue. And let's talk about how we can help you with that. Uh, and and I, I don't think anybody here, as much as we joke about it, no one here is that callous that we're truly just kicking people out the door after giving them a slug of opioids. Uh, we're talking with people about this. We're talking uh, to them about some of their opioid use patterns. Uh, do they have other uh, substance abuse issues that we need to kind of address while they're there? And then uh, talking to them about if you really mi- if your migraines are really this bad and they're this refractory, we need to have you see a neurologist and there are other things we can do. And usually people will kind of split one way or the other at that, that point. They're, they either are open and they want to listen to you or they're out of there. When it comes to the, the true migraines, the people that come in, they've got sunglasses on inside. Uh, they've got, uh, you know, they know, they've had this before. They have a neurologist or maybe they don't. They just got a really bad headache. And you have this discussion with them and it's very clear that it's, they're not looking for a diagnosis. They're not looking to, oh, your headache's not anything bad. You'll be okay. They're like, I just need this headache to go away. So when you line up your armory of uh, headache uh, migraine cocktails, what are you, what are you pulling out first? So I definitely like cocktails. Um, I would, everyone to me will get a gram of Tylenol. That's just, unless they've had it within, um, you know, four or six hours, they're probably going to get a gram of Tylenol, whether they like it or not and say it works or doesn't work. Cause I'm looking for a, um, kind of a synergistic effect of all of the meds is how I play this. So I'd like to give as many meds as possible up front, uh, that I feel are safe because if each med reduces their headache from a nine to an eight, if they all are given together, I'm hoping that goes from nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, I'm going out the door. So I'm trying to reset them and get them moving. But Tylenol to me is the safest, easiest. It's an over-the-counter medicine. If they haven't tried at home, maybe they just tried 
ibuprofen, but it's something that just about everyone can get. And yes, cirrhotics can get a single dose of Tylenol in the emergency room and will not bleed out or go into worse liver failure. It's not a toxic dose. So I start with that. Um, and if you would ask me what my cocktail was five years ago, I definitely changed it from where I'm at now. Um, my number two medicine will be an IV, assuming they want to take that. Uh, if they don't want an IV, then we, we switch and go to a different pathway. Um, if they do take the IV, they'll all get a liter of saline. Again, I feel that's a very safe, benign um, component. We're in Arizona. A lot of people get dehydrated. Headache is a common sign of dehydration. And so it's also very safe and effective. Almost everyone can take a single liter of uh, saline. These people don't look they're in, like they're in heart failure. They're usually coming in for headache. Um, the third medicine I will offer is going to either be metoclopramide or uh, clonazepam, And those, I use either or. I don't use both at the same time. Um, you could put uh, Phenergan in that same classification, but over the years, I've kind of done my own RCTs of the three medicines, and this is how I started as an attending, and I would give every third patient one of them, yeah. and after a while, you got to see how they worked and their side effects and how patients reacted or liked, liked them. The Phenergan, to me, makes people feel off. Um, they seem to feel a little bit different. They didn't like the way it made them feel. And so there are some patients that want that sensation. If they are asking for Phenergan, I'm happy to give them the Phenergan. I won't give them the other two. Um, but otherwise, I would start with Compazine or Reglin. To me, they're pretty comparable. Most of the neurology literature will uh, allow you to use both, and they have a lot of good studies. Metoclopramide in some of the neurology literature, we normally give it a 10 milligram dose. Some studies go up to 20 milligrams. So even a second dose of Reglan is not unreasonable to give. Um, I usually start with 10, but I, I, 20 is, is out there in the literature as well. Um, and both of these can have extrapyramidal side effects. So you have to think about that. Reglan, if you give in the IV fluid and run it over 15 minutes, will drop the rate of those extrapyramidal side effects significantly. I learned that from a nurse my second year out. So all Reglan should be given in that normal saline bag. <laughs> also, the nice part is either Compazine or Reglan or Phenergan, I could give them a prescription for to go home with. And that's something that I could add to maybe prevent against the next headache or preventing them or help them with this headache that continues on. Um, my third medicine or fourth medicine, I guess now would be magnesium. Is there great studies for magnesium? No, but it's really <laughs> safe. And some people just like they swear it made everything better. Um, the, the thought with magnesium is maybe there's some blockage of the calcium release and the vessel spasm and the sarcoplasmic reticulum and all that good stuff. Now you're it's just saying not, big words. <laughs> <laughs> it, I don't think that has proven out as a, the specific mechanism, but that's the theorized mechanism that magnesium would work. But two grams of magnesium um, works for some patients and otherwise it doesn't do anything. It's pretty cheap, very low side effects, um, not unreasonable to give. And then I'm also now I'm actually at the same time asking people if they will take a nerve block. And I think everyone should get a nerve block if they're willing to take it. I think that is a very safe first line medicine. And if they don't want an IV, 
They may get a gram of Tylenol, 10 of Reglan orally, and a nerve block, and I'll be ready to discharge them after that. And it's a, we'll talk about nerve blocks later, but I think they're great. Um, and again, very safe, very safe, low side effect profile. I'm also a big droperidol or Haldol user, as everyone probably knows on the podcast. But Haldol is a great medicine for headaches. We don't have droperidol. Some places I think do now. Uh, we still don't have it, Chris. Is that correct? Uh, that's correct. We got one flat of it in and uh, our budget guy was like, why are we buying this? It's like 10 times more expensive than Haldol. And, uh, <laughs> Why is it 10 times more expensive than Haldol? I thought it was all generic still. Is it just not, the supply's not up yet? That's it. That's it. There's just not adequate supplies to meet the demand. Uh, we got it like right when it first came back on market too. Okay. So uh, it's possible that that balance was kind of off at that time. But And I think it was a production issue. Wasn't I think it stopped being produced in 13 or 14. And so it started to fade away. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of us have been using Haldol for this indication I think it's a great drug for headache. Again, it's working on the dopaminergic. If you order Reglan and Haldol at the same time, you will get a warning from your pharmacy and saying two dopaminergic agents, you know, the patient's going to self-destruct. I will tell you after thousands of cases, I've had no patient self-destruct. You will get some extra pyramidal side effects. That is not uncommon. And if your headache patient says they want to go, that can be good or bad. Um, I would recommend giving some Benadryl and maybe talking to them at that case. Um, I used to give Benadryl in my cocktail as a first line. But if you look, looking at the literature, I haven't seen that Benadryl truly makes a difference. It's probably more of a preventative ahead of time. I don't want my nurse to call me. And about the extra pyramidal side effects. Um, if you're doing this, I usually do not do 50 of Benadryl up front. I'll go with the 25 because I'm hoping my Haldol will have more of an effect. I also like to favor Haldol or Droperidol in patients that tend to have um, polycystic ovarian syndrome, histories of depression, uh, maybe some underlying psychiatric disorder. They have abdominal migraines. They have um, chronic pelvic pain. There's a lot of uh, probably subconscious uh, patients that are, have underlying stress. So their migraine is probably helped uh, with Haldol in those patients. So that's a lot. I think that was probably six or seven meds uh, or options, but I would consider all of those and I consider them all upfront. What about steroids? You left your steroids off. You usually oh, I left. Yeah. So steroids to me, um, I do give steroids, uh, if patients are are frequent cyclers and headaches. So if they tell me, you know, I get headaches probably once a month and I come into the ER every third month, I consider steroids for someone like that. If they say, you know, I get a headache every two years, I don't think they're, you know, one that would benefit as much from steroids because steroids is really not helping the initial headache. Um, you know, it's really trying to prevent the recurrence or um, the second headache or third headache and decrease the frequency of the headaches that they're coming in for presentation. Um, if I do give it, I do dexamethasone, 10 milligrams IV, and I just give it as a one-time dose. I'm not sending these patients home with a, a prednisone taper, you know, a Medrol dose pack, which no one should ever prescribe anyway. But I would just give a single dose of the steroids uh, there, if you're considering that. Well, I think when Brian says he likes to use all the medicines up front, I think he literally means all of them. Like any medicine that's available, if you come in and see Brian, you're probably going to get it. 
uh, <laughs> multiple different routes sometimes as well. Uh, but Brian, what is your orifices <laughs> or a or a Brian, what, uh, just to kind of like put these all together. So you have a bunch of different medicines that you like to give. What is your goal when you're giving all these medications? So my goal is a control alt delete and reset the patient. <laughs> yeah. And seriously, I'm, I am totally okay with that. Um, I, my goal is to put them out for a little bit of time or restart their, uh, their cycle of pain that caused uh, the headache. And I will shut the door, turn off the lights and say, let me know when you're ready to leave. I mean, that, that's um, why we were trying propofol for a while. We were giving yes. propofol just to reset. I mean, I, I think our own Dr. Mosier did a study on that uh, early on. Yeah, he likes to talk about that study too. Does he? Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but so, yeah, my, that's my goal is to try to reset. You know, I think with any pain cycle, you're trying to stop the cycle from going. Um, and for this, it doesn't always mean that you're going to get eradication. You're trying to get improvement to the point, like with any pain control, where the patient feels comfortable and can manage that pain level um, at home or somewhere else. And that's what we're trying to do with any pain control. So it's not that you're bringing them from a nine to a zero. If nine to a seven, they're like, yeah, I feel good. I don't need any more meds. Thanks so much. That's fine. You can send that patient home. So this is where numerical pain uh, schedule or uh, pain scales don't matter to me. It's really the question you should be asking if you're talking about headache or any pain should be, do you want anything else for your pain? And if they say no, you're done. You're at a point where the patient is happy and you don't need to push it any farther. Yeah, I try to phrase it that, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I can't promise you I'm going to completely take away your pain. I just want to make this manageable of where you feel like you can go home, you've gotten a little break in your pain, you've seen a little light at the end of the tunnel, you've gotten some relief, and you can deal with what you've dealt with for years with migraines at home, you just couldn't get that breakthrough right now, so. So for for my cocktail, I'm uh, aligned pretty much with Brian. I, I for a while, was uh, strictly like Haldol first-line agent kind of person, and I still feel like Haldol's fine as a first line agent. Um, but I've uh, been playing around with different combinations, uh, Compazine, uh, Reglan, and, um, and the Haldol. And I've found that uh, I get pretty much the same efficacy with all three of them. I know the studies show actually Compazine barely beat out the other others, um, but they also had increased akesthesia. And I totally have seen that. I've, I've seen increased akesthesia with the Compazine. I still see it with the Reglan. I still see it, of course, with the Haldol. Um, but I'm pretty much on the fence between whether I'm going to give you Reglan or Haldol. And then I thought, well, wait, if I'm on the fence between the two and I, and I know one is less sedating, why not just go with that one? So I'd say for the past year, my, my, my first line's probably just been, been Reglan. Um, but I, I really sometimes just for some sort of like subtle vibe I get from the patient. I feel like, you know, you're a Haldol patient today and, and uh, I'll give them Haldol. Um, with, Brian mentioned this, but I, I wanted to, to just bring it up. If you are, if you're running a busy ER, you've treated your patients, you're kind of relying on the nurses to give you feedback. Like when someone's ready to go, that's normal. That's good. But if you've given somebody some medicines that can cause akesthesia and like 20 minutes, 10 minutes later, the nurse is like, hey, man, the doctor, doc, can you give me the paperwork? This patient's like itching to leave. They're like, they're ready to go, man. Their IV's out. They're, they're itching to go. 
do not print papers and just give them to the nurse and have them discharge the patient. You have to go see that patient because they are tripping balls right then. And, um, they're jumping out of their skin. And every person you talk to with akesthesia, if you ask them, uh, if, if it, if it feels horrible, sometimes they can't really describe how it feels. They just know they're in the wrong place. They feel like they need to leave. And, um, every single one of them after I've treated them and I've come back and I've said, can you, what, what did that feel like? Was that they, they all say, I will never take that medicine again. I'd much rather have the headache. That was the worst sensation I've ever had in my life. And I can't, you know, the idea of sending somebody home with that sensation, having them have to endure it for hours is, is cruel. And so just make sure that, you, you know, you don't miss the akesthesia. So with that, do I give Benadryl in my cocktail? I'll be honest. For, um, when I was a resident, I would always write the order, give Benadryl. 20 minutes later, give whatever my antiemetic was going to be, my Compazine or, or, or Reglan. And guess how many times the nurses did that? A big fat zero, I'm pretty sure. So I would always give them like a hard time and say, you know, if a patient's having anesthesia, I told you to give the Benadryl first. At, at some point, you have to realize that there, there is a, a theoretical uh, way of practicing and a practical way of practicing. And I, and I tried to implement it. It didn't work. So for me, it's not a practical way to, to practice. So I said, well, what happens if I just don't give the Benadryl at all? And um, obviously still having anesthesia, but I didn't see it different than when I was giving the Benadryl with the Reglan. I don't know why. I don't know if the, the, the mechanism of action that it has delayed, delayed pharmacokinetics or something like that. But when I would give the Reglan and the Benadryl together, I was still getting the same rate of akesthesia as I would when I didn't give the Benadryl at all, except in the first case, I had already given them 25 of Benadryl. And so now when they're having akesthesia, do I give them 25 or do I give them 50 and make it a, a too much? So I found I was actually more liberal with my Benadryl after they had the akesthesia because I knew I could give them like a full 50 and totally knock it out. So that's kind of how I practice. I usually don't give Benadryl just willy nilly with my initial cocktail. I, I, I make it a point to go check on the patient 20 minutes or so afterwards, make sure they're not having akesthesia. Sometimes I'll even tell the patient what that sensation can feel like. And I'll tell them it's not an allergy, but it's a really bad side effect. If you start feeling that way, I don't want you to grin and bear it and tough it out. I want you to push the buzzer and have them come and we'll give you medicine to make it go away. The next thing uh, that is often thrown out there that Chris and I were talking were, was in vogue for a while, not so much anymore, are the triptans, sumatriptan. Uh, just give them a sub-Q dose, knock out their headache, they get to turn around in just a matter of minutes and then they're good to go. And there's a reason why you don't see any of us doing that anymore. You want to tell your story uh, yeah. without any protected health information or protected colleague information? Provider information? I don't think he would care, but I, I'll protect him. So, <laughs> you know, when, when Aaron and I were, were in residency together, uh, we did go, there was a phase where we were all trying uh, sumatriptan, um, usually as a sub-Q injection. Um, and we were pretty particular in our patients. Like if someone came in and said, I've been having three days of headache, we wouldn't give it. But if they said, you know, my headache just started, we would use it as an abortive agent, which is really what it's for. And uh, we did have, uh, I would say, honestly, a fair amount of success. I don't think it was better than any of the other drugs by any stretch, but it was kind of elegant because you could just give a quick sub-Q injection in certain populations. Their headache would go away and you didn't have to deal with putting in an IV and all the other medications waiting for side effects to possibly pop up, except in this one, one instance. And uh, one of our colleagues was uh, treating a patient in the 
actually, I even remember the room it was room 23. And she was a 20 something year old uh, female, no prior medical history, comorbidities or whatever. She was just having like a, a migraine. She was the perfect setup for this to get the, to get the uh, sumatriptan um, because her headache had been pretty recent. So uh, my co-resident gave a, uh, a injection of uh, the sumatriptan and she developed chest pain shortly thereafter. They got an EKG and she had a full STEMI appearance on her EKG. I ended up having to admit her and you know, she obviously just had that severe uh, vasoconstriction in just the wrong vessels. And so um, it wasn't that one instance that caused us to stop using sumatriptan. It kind of just went out of vogue all on its own. But um, that's one thing you need to definitely be careful of. Obviously, you don't give it to anybody who has a history of coronary disease or, or stroke risk. It's also the tri a lot of patients have tried triptans at home and they didn't work and then they're coming in to see you. So to me, it doesn't make sense to redose a triptan. Um, what's interesting though, I, I think in a lot of medical schools, they still teach triptans as first line for headaches um, as in the pharmacology courses, which is kind of interesting because it's not a first line for us, um, but maybe they're focused more on an outpatient setting or some other um modality. But yeah, I agree. With yeah. I don't use triptans at all. I think most of the literature that shows that it's effective is in a private practice, neurology clinic. Um, it's not in the ED. And you could argue that the ED is not first line management for migraines. If you're coming to the ED, you've tried some things. So now we're kind of at the last lines. Um, these are, once I'm getting to this point where I'm really doing last line of defense kind of stuff, um, I'm thinking about calling neurology because I want their buy-in because if I really can't get this patient to feel well enough to go home um, and they are still in tears, they've gotten no relief uh, and they've had a complicated uh, past medical history with migraines, then I'm starting to think about some of the other things. Usually what they will recommend when I call them is they'll say, well, have you tried magnesium? Yes, we've tried that. And they like to try valproic acid as well, which has uh, some efficacy in patients with migraines. Um, I'm not very quick to just give them a load of valproate and then send them out. I usually like to have a neurologist on board with that. Uh, but I'm also in a tertiary care center where we have residents who we can call at all hours of the night and they just expect to be up at all times. That may not be something that you can do in your private practice setting. Uh, so there is literature behind it that says that it is efficacious in aborting migraines, and it might be something that you add uh, to your uh, your migraine armamentarium that's not something right up front. And then, Brian, you like to do cervical blocks right off the bat. Um, I haven't had the same luck, which probably means I'm not as good of an aim as you. Uh, but tell me what you do when you approach these cervical blocks and what you're using and what your kind of uh, approach to these patients is. Sure. So, so to me, there's two cervical blocks um, I use. I, I think both um, can work very well immediately. So I'm talking 15 minutes, they'll get a resolution of the headache and be ready to go, or they just won't work. But the nice part is it, they're both very safe. So the first one is a greater occipital nerve block, um, and you can do that via landmark or ultrasound guided, depending on what you want to do. Um, this greater occipital nerve, you're going to feel the inion on the, the posterior uh, occiput of the scalp and the mastoid process. And if you put your fingers on both of those 
and go right in the middle on, and I usually ask them which side does it hurt the most? And if they, whatever side it hurts the most, that's the side I'll usually go to. And in between uh, those two um, points of anatomy, you can inject kind of in a field block. I'll go down and then aim left, aim right, and massage in. Um, I use, there's, to me, there's only one anesthetic I use for everything. It's lidocaine with epinephrine. Um, I think it acts on fast. It stays on. It doesn't have any of the side effects that I'm worried about with overdoses of some of like the bupivacanes and stuff like that. So I only use one, one medicine for this. Um, and so how much am I giving in an area? Probably, um, four to five mils uh, spread out in that area. And the nice part is if you go too deep, you're just going to hit the bone. So you're not like, you're not going into their spinal canal or anything like that. And uh, it's pretty well tolerated. Uh, you have to let the patients know the sensation on that side of the head uh, may feel altered. Um, and I explained to them, this is similar to a dental block that your dentist is going to do before they work on your tooth. So it's not some, you know, multiple painful sticks. It's pretty similar to that. And it's pretty well tolerated. I have the patients in a seated position. Um, you clean the area with an alcohol prep and do an injection. There's some good YouTube videos if you want to see it with ultrasound guidance and you can actually identify the nerve if that makes you feel more comfortable. Um, but doing it as a field block as well is also not an unreasonable approach. The other block um, that I used first is called um, uh, pericervical block, or if you look in the literature, is the Mellick injection, M-E-L-L-I-C-K. And that's after Larry Mellick, who's an emergency physician in Atlanta. Um, he has a couple of videos on YouTube with this, uh, as does Al Sacchetti. They have uh, both shown some videos with doing this in patients. And in a sense, where you're going for this is you feel the prominence of C7 on the spinous process, and then you feel above that, that this, the space between the spinous process of C6 and C7. And you're going to go two centimeters lateral to the midline on each side. And you're going to have the patient in a seated position, and then you're going to advance the needle parallel to the floor about one centimeter in. And you're going to inject two mils on each side or thereabouts. You could do one mil, three mils. It's, you're not doing 20 mils on each side, but just a little bit on each side. And then again, massage it in. That's kind of the thought is it's, you're more of a plexus, plexus block. Um, some people don't like that as much, uh, but I've had good results with both. I say they probably work 50% of the time, but to me, if one in two headache patients is better within 15 to 20 minutes with just a local nerve block with a very low side effect profile and almost no harm. Um, that's pretty good. And you don't get that uh, often. I just did one with uh, Ryan Bosler, uh, one of our residents. I told him, I'm like, let's go do this. And then uh, he came back in 15 minutes later and gave me a high five and said, her headache's totally gone. This is awesome. And we sent the patient home. So there's times it won't work. But when it does, you, you look pretty good. So, Do you make a, an effort to distinguish whether this is a tension headache or migraine, or, or does it not matter? It doesn't matter to me. Um, now, if it's a traumatic headache and you're know, like a post-concussive, that's right. not 
patient population. I, I always assumed that the, the injection was more for like a muscle spasm kind of tension headache. I've never tried it for just strict migraine. Yeah, I'll use it for straight migraine. Um, there's there's probably thoughts that right. It's a it's there's some muscle component that you're right when you bring that tension into your uh, your traps and your pericervical musculature. That's probably helping. That may be pinching on the nerve some as well. So is that the cause of the headache from the tension, um, or are you just blocking the nerve uh, in a cyclic uh, component? So uh, different theories on this, but. I think it's a pretty safe option and they're not super hard to learn um, in terms of, you know, you could talk about lots of nerve blocks, you know, ultrasound guiding, you know, and, and doing median nerve blocks and going right down and finding the nerve. This can be done by landmark uh, alone. So it's not that it's a specific skill set that you have to do and they're in safe places. Um, the paracervical block or uh, melic injection you're not going into the spinal canal. So you're not going midline and doing this injection. You're going lateral to the midline uh, on each side. They use acupuncture to treat headaches too, Brian. Maybe you're just doing acupuncture. Have they done like a placebo <laughs> control? Um, like saline versus uh, lidocaine? I don't know. Um, you know, that a lot of this is in the whole, right? There's dry needling out there and... Yeah. Um, you know, that's kind of like we talk about trigger point injections. I mean, we're doing the same thing physical therapists are doing with dry needling, except we're throwing a medication in, I think. Um, it, you know, in terms of acupuncture for headaches, when I looked at of all the things that acupuncture probably proves out in the data the most would be for uh, post nausea vomiting of from cancer meds is mm. probably the number one indication for acupuncture and some of like muscle relaxation. So the question is, is it doing more of a muscle relaxation or that's pinching the nerve or you're just relaxing them and they feel better and then their headache's gone because that was what was causing it. Yeah, as a brand new attending, um, I had a resident come up to me and say, I heard on this podcast uh, how to treat headache. And so I'm going to inject some bupivacaine right at the base of this patient's skull. And I was like, no, no, we're not doing that. No, we're doing the old barbaric, just smack them with a bunch of medication stuff. So it's, it's, it, now it's like the Melic uh, procedure of, of doing these blocks and like it's got more traction. It's got more literature behind it. It's actually been studied versus like, hey, I've got this really great idea. So it kind of goes to the concept of you never want to be the first person to adopt something, but you also don't want to be the last. You want to ride that curve just at the right space. So. Um, so I think anything more than what we've talked about, when you start talking about DHE, dihydroergotamine, I mean, this is all inpatient neurology stuff. There's a lot of stuff that you can think outside of the box. And when you look at most of the guidelines that are out there from neurologists, from emergency doctors, um, there's no one set of uh, drugs that seem to work best compared to all the rest. There are some that are probably uh, recommended more uh, that are recommended first line. And that's likely more to do with a risk benefit ratio. What is the potential side effects of these medications and how well have they been shown to work? But this really is your chance to mix up your own cocktail. You can throw in, uh, you know, the medications that have the 
highest yield, the least amount of side effects that work the best for your patient. I ask them all the time, what have you had before that seems to work for you? And as long as it's not hydromorphone, there's a good chance I'm going to try that one first. That's right. I was watching a famous uh, baking show last night and they were telling the contestants like, this is your chance to show your personality in what you produce. So I would tell the residents, this is your chance to show your personality in the cocktails that you present to the attendings. So I had a question. Actually, this is uh, get, gets back to the akesthesia thing. And, and this is like a scholar quest idea. So I've been, I've been put, pushing this out for years. I'm not that much of an academician or a scholar. And so I don't have the desire to do it. But if there's any intrepid, like budding uh, researchers out there, maybe like the incoming, incoming uh, intern class, and they were looking for a scholar quest, this is, this is my idea. And actually, Chris, I'd like to bounce this idea off you. So um, anecdotal uh, experience on my part is that <laughs> if I'm giving Raglan or I'm giving Fenergan or Haldol, and I'm giving it for the indication of nausea and vomiting. And then I kind of sit back and think about all the akesthesias that I've seen in that indication. It is nowhere near the rates of akesthesia I see when I'm giving the exact same doses for a different indication, migraine. And I've, I don't know if I'm the only one that's seen that, but I swear when I'm giving these exact same meds for nausea and vomiting, I, I do see occasional akesthesia, but nowhere near the amounts that I do for for headache. And I'm wondering if there's a reason for that. These kinds of observations are the foundation of awesome research. I would love to do that project. <laughs> that would be really interesting. Yeah. Uh, you heard it here, residents. You want a Scholar Crest project, <laughs> go for it. So We'll call it the well, Williams effect. <laughs> love it. Or love it. Or how about the Chris effect? The Chris now effect. I get it. Chris. The now Chris we're effect. talking. Let's do it. Now we're talking. <laughs> mentioned the, the mixing and uh, mixing cocktails and stuff. Uh, one thing I will say, I, I mentioned earlier, don't tell a pharmacist if you're mixing all this up in the same bag. And there was a reason for that. Uh, I wasn't just being a weenie. Um, so uh, a lot of this stuff is not compatible. Uh, so for example, uh, haloperidol and, and diphenhydramine uh, are known to precipitate if they're mixed in the same syringe. We get away with it sometimes with the B52 because we mix it and give it really fast. That's bad practice. Don't do it. Uh, but I think that's why we get away with it. Uh, if you mix this in the same liter bag and let it hang over an hour, um, there's a good chance that you're going to get some precipitation. You may not have as effective of a drug and it could potentially form crystals that could hurt your patient. So, uh, that's why I recommend not doing that. Um, really good point. Slower infusion it, it is beneficial. And if you need to, you can always shoot that stuff into a 50 mil bag and just have the nurse run it in over 15 minutes. It's probably a better practice. The only medicine I put, I have the nurses put in a bag would be Reglan. So the rest are usually pushes and that's just because of the delay. Um, in that, and to be honest, if you, I think if you bolus them that leader and you get the 10, uh, megs of Reglan over uh, a 15 minute period, you would have a very similar effect. The, the hard part is a slow push of Reglan at the at the bedside is time consuming for nurses mm -hmm. and hard to do, but like a lot of these meds, I agree with Chris, you know, uh, you know, I use ketamine for pain control and I put it in a run it over 15 minutes you know, in a small, you know, 150 mil bag, and you can do that pretty well. Um, since I brought up ketamine, that's one drug that everyone likes to talk about. But I think if you look at the literature on ketamine for headache, it's probably the one indication ketamine does not work. Um, so just, you may hear be like, well, let's try ketamine. Um, so if my understanding and my reading of the literature is it has not shown that it has been better uh, than these other meds. Those bigger studies did not bear it out as my understanding. 
of, of that aspect of literature. But I like ketamine for all kinds of things. But this is the one thing I, I haven't seen good evidence for. That's too bad. I know. I've, I've still tried it. <laughs> it didn't yeah, always I still work. Don't, I still don't believe it. Probably, Brian, you, if you give yourself the ketamine, I'm sure it works a lot better. Suddenly you're like, I don't care the patient's got a headache. So. I'm actually going through ketamine withdrawal right now, Aaron. So. <laughs> well, everybody enjoy making your own migraine cocktails, make them responsibly. And if you haven't seen uh, the Andy Sandberg uh, bartender scene from Portlandia, absolutely hilarious. And we'll give you an idea of kind of what we're doing is we're trying to scientifically break down our migraine cocktails that are made up on the spot. There you are. Thank you. That is a ginger-based bourbon drink infused with honey, lemon, and charred ice. Wow. Then building off of that base, we've got cherry tomato, lime zest. Um, I actually made the bitters myself at home. Wow. Uh, we've got egg whites, egg shell, egg yellows, rotten banana. It adds to, like, the flavor of it. Secret of the pros, yeah. Also, we're just trying to get rid of it, so. Uh, that's pretty much what we're trying to do is we're saying like, yes, we have excellent science behind these. Like it, this would be something good to say. I'd like to try something a little different, see what kind of a response I get. Uh, but usually you'll end up finding something that works for you, finding something that works for the patient. And the idea is rule out the bad stuff and try to get them feeling better.